Your words will come up in the screen, but if you turn in your Bibles to Philippians 2, I'm going to speak for a few moments about Christ's humiliation. We'll sing again, and then Wes will speak to us about Christ's exaltation, and then we'll take the Lord's table in remembrance of all that he has done. So Philippians 2, 5 to 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. For centuries, theologians have spoken about the work of Christ as being carried out in two different states. Christ's position as determined by his relationship to the law, and then the condition that follows from that state. And these two positions are called the state of humiliation and the state of exaltation. And the state of humiliation is where Christ, where Christ laid aside his divine majesty, allowing it to be hidden, at least in part. He assumed human nature in the form of a servant and became voluntarily subject to the demands and the curse of the law. The state of exaltation is the state wherein Christ passed from under the penalty and the burden of the law to possess all the blessings of salvation and he was crowned with glory and honour. And it's right and it's proper for us to remember the sufferings of the Lord Jesus on Good Friday. But we shouldn't pretend that we don't know the story, how the story ends. But there are five stages that go with the state of humiliation Five stages that go with a state of humiliation. And they, you probably are aware, but it tracks with what we've been looking at on Thursdays, the language of the Apostles' Creed. So the five stage, stages of Christ's humiliation are considered his incarnation, his suffering, his death, his burial, and his descent into hell. And that's why in the Creed we say, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, Crucified, died, buried, descended into hell. That is what we mean when we say Christ's humiliation. And we see the exaltation as well in the Apostles' Creed. But there's no passage of scripture where we see these states more clearly side by side than Philippians 2. So just for a few moments I want to look at Christ's humiliation from these verses. And I want to focus on the phrase in verse 7, he emptied himself. And the Greek word is ekinosin, which is why theologians talk about kenosis, and it comes from the Greek word ekinosis. There are kenosis theories of the incarnation. Some theological background in the 19th and 20th century, German and British theologians speculated and came up with new understandings of the kenosis. Some argued that Christ abandoned the relative attributes of deity they called his omnipotence, but he retained the essential 
attributes. I would say there is not really relative and essential. They're all essential. But they said he set aside those while he retained holiness and love. They are the essential ones. Others said, well, Christ divested himself of relative and essential attributes to the point of disrupting the life of the Trinity. And he somehow suspended his own function for a time. I, I think that's extreme. That's an extreme view. Others, not wanting to go that far, simply said Christ ceased to exercise his divine functions. He abandoned certain divine prerogatives. So he lived his earthly life entirely within the bounds of his human nature. And the central point of all of these kenosis theories is that Christ somehow set aside something of his divine attributes. That he emptied himself. You can see well, how they could have concluded that from verse 7. I don't agree with that. So what do we do with the phrase he emptied himself? In what way did Christ empty himself? And here is the key, and what I want you to remember from verse 7, one sentence. Christ's self-abasement came by way of addition, not by subtraction. Christ's humiliation came by addition, not by subtraction. It means that when the Son of God took on human flesh, he became something he was not without ceasing to be all that he was. He became something he was not. He had not been a man without ceasing to be all that he was. He never ceased to be the fully divine son of God. So I think it's wrong to think about it that he subtracted something, but he added something. He didn't empty himself at all of his divine attributes. He didn't divest himself of deity. He emptied himself in that he willingly submitted himself to human pain. And for a while, for a time, he allowed his glory to be veiled and the full extent of his deity to be obscured. But he never ceased to be the eternal son of God. And see, on the Mount of Transfiguration, you have the unveiling. There's no mistaking who he is. But for a time, having taken on human nature and earthly existence, he allowed that glory at least to be partially veiled and obscured. And if you look at verses 7 and 8, you notice three ways that I believe that we can meditate on this morning where Christ emptied himself. Number one, he took the form of a servant. That is, Christ didn't insist on his rights. He who was in the form of God, verse 6, took the form of a servant. In other words, he who should have been served by everyone on earth, said in Mark 10, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He became a servant. Secondly, he emptied himself by being born in the likeness of men. Now, in one sense, there is nothing inherently demeaning about being born a human. I said that Christ's incarnation is part of his humiliation. 
that is true in a certain respect. To possess a human nature is not in itself humiliating, lest how can we make sense of the fact that Christ continues to have a human nature, because the incar incarnation is perpetual. For the rest of history, for the eternity, the Son of God is fully human and fully divine. So it isn't the fact that he just took on a human nature, but rather being made in the likeness of men, he was subject to the weaknesses and infirmities of fallen humanity. He knew privation, he knew grief, he knew limitation according to his human nature. In particular, he submitted himself to all the prescriptive requirements of the law. And he himself suffered the penalties of the law. So to live on earth in his condition meant the partial veiling of his identity. And in that way, the incarnation was self-emptying. So he took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. And he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And that's why we gather today. That's why we gather on Good Friday. And we're so familiar with the death of Jesus on the cross. It's almost the first things children, Christian children are taught. You say Jesus, and it's like when the doctor hits that knee and your leg in, in, you know, involuntarily kicks out. Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins. They know that. We tell our children that Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins. But never lose sight of the majesty and the amazement that the Son of God died. The mystery, the sinless one, Jesus Christ, the immortal, dies. So there's no act of self-emptying more pronounced than Christ's willingness to die the bitter and shameful death on the cross. So that as the God-man, he endured the most un-God-like humiliation. Helplessness. Derision. He was spat upon. He died. And that was but the climax of the suffering. But it was not the beginning. We mustn't limit Christ's suffering or his humiliation just to Good Friday. Or to even the Passion Week. Or even to the years of his public ministry. His whole life... From human birth to human death was a life of suffering. Christ's suffering began before his baptism. He was born in poverty. He underwent circumcision on the eighth day. He fled as a refugee to Egypt when Herod tried to kill him. He laboured as a carpenter. He earned his bread by the sweat of his brow. Christ's suffering, then contradiction from his baptism to Gethsemane. He was tempted he was assaulted by the devil. Christ was hated by the religious elite. He was hated by the Pharisees, the scribes and the rulers. Haven't we seen, they, 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 they saw all the time, they lived to trap him. They would have woken up every day, how can we trap Jesus today? They forbade anyone to provide lodging for him. They commanded people to know his whereabouts. Everywhere Jesus went, he was held in contempt. The Son of God. He was reviled, he was contradicted. They tried to throw him off a cliff. 
They tried to kill him with stones. He suffered hunger and thirst. He had nowhere to lay his head. But Christ's suffering was seen most clearly in the hours from Gethsemane to Golgotha, when he fell on his face and he sweat drops of blood. He was betrayed by one of his twelve. He was forsaken by his followers. He was captured by his enemies. He was accused by false witnesses. He was struck on the mouth by a servant. He was condemned as a blasphemer. He was mocked, spit upon, struck on the face. He had a twisted crown of thorns on his brow. He was ridiculed, tormented, scourged with a whip of bone and glass. He was led out to bear his own cross and he hung between two criminals. He was jeered at by all who passed by. He was given vinegar with gall to drink. For three hours he hung in the darkness. He died having experienced the wrath of God. As one writer puts it, Behold the man of sorrows. Can any manner of sorrow, contempt and ridicule be imagined with which the Lord Jesus was not afflicted? In this manner the Prince of Life was killed and the Lord of Glory was crucified. Make no mistake, no one suffered more unjustly than the Lord Jesus. No one has ever suffered more unjustly than the Lord Jesus. No man has ever suffered in more excruciating pain, bearing the wrath of God for the sins of the world than the Lord Jesus. No human existence was marked by such undeserving and unrelenting humiliation. Humiliation in the life and the death of our Lord Jesus. But of course, we don't focus on his suffering, humili- suffering and humiliation because we're gathering today to feel sorry for Jesus. Because Jesus said, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Judgment is coming if you do not believe and repent. There it is right there. We're not gathering to feel sorry for Jesus. No, Christians are gathering all over the world today. So that, not that we can feel sorry for a man who died and suffered unjustly. Many men have suffered unjustly. Christ suffered as one of us that he might suffer for us. That's why we're gathering. He suffered for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust, the undeserving of punishment for the deserving. So we've simply gathered because Jesus Christ suffered for sinners like me. He was cast low so that we might be lifted up, that we might look on him as the serpent of old was raised up And by looking on him, by his wounds we are healed. So that all who are joined to Christ by faith can know the forgiveness of God. But Hebrews tell us that they cast aside the derision and the scorn of the cross, looking forward to the joy that was set before him. For Good Friday, we know, is not the end of the story, but Sunday is coming. And humiliation is not the end of the story for us, my friend. And it was not the end of the story for Christ because he was humiliated so that he might be exalted. May the Lord bless the word. Amen.
and we'll stand together and we'll sing when I survey the wondrous cross. Sorry, we'll sing together. Man of Sorrows, what a name.
Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 9 and 11 we'll be looking at now. Philippians chapter 2, 9 and 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what we, uh, I would like to do just for the next few moments is spend the majority of our time in, chapter, in verse 9. But we'll, we'll touch on verse 10 and 11. I've got three little points just to hang a few thoughts from. Uh, a lofty position, uh, verse 9. A lowly position, verse 10. And a loud praise, verse 11. So we've just established that the humility of Christ as he humbled himself, as he condescended down from glory, down to death, even death on a cross. But now we get to verse 9, to the hinge point, where it, where it changes direction all of a sudden. The, the position goes from lowly to a, a lofty, doesn't it? What we see here in these next three verses is, the ex, is Christ's exaltation. The, the first uh, thing I want us to see... Uh, is how Christ w was uh, went from lowly to high. How God highly exalted him. Here we see uh, the source uh, of Christ's exaltation. That the Father exalted the Son. Not only did he exalt the Son, but he highly exalted the Son. And in the Greek that is one word. Uh, and it could be, uh, translated as super exalted or hyper exalted that God the Father hyper exalted the Son that he brought him from uh, the lowly depth and highly super highly exalted him but what does this exaltation look like well from his death we see four steps uh, some theologians debate about this, but I, I personally have landed on this four steps. Firstly, we see the first step of the resurrection. The cross uh, without the resurrection is only a half gospel. We can't have 
uh, a full gospel without the resurrection. Half a gospel is no gospel. Without the resurrection, we have no hope, do we? Our faith is futile. How easy we can have a good uh, Friday service and preach the cross, but neglect the resurrection. And then from the resurrection, we see the ascension, then the enthronement, and then the coronation. And there is a sense that we will follow in that. That one day we will be resurrected. That one day we will ascend into heaven. That one day we will, as Christians, be enthroned with him on high. Mm. And we will be coronated with the crowns of righteousness, the rewards for a, a faithful life of, of service. Christ will be exalted uh, and has been exalted, should I say, from his former glory. As he prayed prior to the Garden of Gethsemane in John 17. O oh, Father, glorify me together with yourself. With the glory which I had with you before the world was. So here we see that, that Christ is praying that he would be exalted to where he used to be. But uh, I want to suggest that he was exalted yet further still. This is not to say that he was any more God after uh, his exaltation. That is not to say that he was any less God before uh, his incarnation. That is not to say that God has changed in any way, but that he has received more rights and more privileges and more honours. He uh, receives more honours because of the work of the cross, because he became the God-man. He is exalted more because he is prophet, priest and king. As prophet, uh, he, he fulfilled prophecy. Hebrews 1 tells us, In the past God spoke through, he, he spoke to, sorry, in the past God spoke to our ancestors through prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. And then we see as as priest, as Christ is exalted, then he took the new role as he, the great high priest that intercedes for the Christian. And then as king, as he was exalted to on high, he was exalted as the victorious king, as the serpent crusher, as the triumphant victorious king. And why was Christ exalted? Well, for two reasons, I believe. Firstly, because of his obedience, because he humbled himself, and we know what the, the Bible speaks about humbling ourselves. Whoever humbles themselves will, whoever exalts himself, sorry, will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is a, a, a truism, if you like, that whoever brings themselves low, Christ, God will exalt, and whoever brings themselves up, God will humble and bring down. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. James has just shown us that the humility of Christ and now we see the Father has exalted him in obedience to that humility. Well, there's more than that. The second reason he has exalted because he of, because of his divine nature, if you like. The second, that is the second reason. Alistair Begg puts it quite well. 
The exaltation is a necessary thing. On the account of his deity, there is nowhere else for him to sit. There is no other seat that is suitable for Christ except on the right hand of the Father. This is what... <coughs> this is where we see him today, don't we? We see him on a, uh, on, a, on a throne. No longer is he on a cross. And what a glorious hope that is for us. That through the exaltation of Christ, we find comfort. That Christ is the triumphant uh, risen Saviour. He is no longer in a tomb. You won't find Christ's body, his bones in a tomb, but he is the, the risen, resurrected, ascended, enthroned, coronated King of Kings. Despite what the world says, that Christianity has had its day, we know as Christians we are on the victory side. As Christians, we win in the end, don't we? Then verse 9 carries on. Not only is Christ exalted, but he's been bestowed with a new name, a name that is above every name. Now, when we see in Scripture throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament that certain stages in people's lives, they are bestowed with a new name. We think of, uh, of uh, Peter, who was... Uh, Simon, prior to that, wasn't he? We think of the Apostle Paul, prior he was Saul. And there's many more we can look at. But at the incarnation, Christ was given a name. That name was Jesus. That was his earthly name. But at his exaltation, he was given a new name. That name is Lord. We see this from verse 11. Every tongue confessed that Jesus is Lord. There is no higher name, is there? A name of someone identifies some part or, or some idea of their character. In this particular case, the word Lord here is tra can be translated from the covenant name of God, Yahweh. To the, the Greek reader in that day, they would have automatically have read this and seen that Christ is with Yahweh, he's one with Yahweh. Christ is Yahweh. Jesus is one uh, with God. He is fully God, verily God, truly God. How important is it to have a correct understanding of who Christ is? And then our second uh, point, verse 10 uh, a lowly position. Here we see uh, the response. We, here we see humanity, don't we? That, every, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. This is to say that all men, all women, uh, all throughout all of time, past, present and future, in heaven and in hell, dead or alive, all will bow the knee and worship Christ. They will submit, submit and realise his lordship. They will bow the knee. Bowing the knee gives us an idea of a position of submission. It gives us the idea of worship. When you bow the knee, you are in doing an act of worship. 
when you lower oneself to someone who is in front of you, you are saying that person you are bowing before is greater than you. This is a public acknowledgement of the greatness of Christ. It doesn't matter who you are, what you have done, or where you are from, everybody will bow the knee before Christ one day. And there's only two differences. You will either bow the knee by choice or by force. The Christian will bow the knee by choice. The non-Christian will bow the knee by force. On that day, there will be nobody else standing, only Christ. Mm. On that day, there will be no uh, arguments and fights. There will be no, no one's, no open theists. There will be no anti-God deniers. There will be no atheists. There will be no agnostics. All those that have swore that they would never bow the knee to Christ. All those that blaspheme the holy name of Christ. All will bow the knee before him there. From the good, the bad and the ugly, they will all bow the knee before him. From Queen Elizabeth to, uh, to Elon Musk to Donald Trump to Boris Johnson, they will all bow the knee. From Buddha to Adolf Hitler, even to Putin, they will all bow the knee mm. to Christ. Mm. Paul here is, is explains to us further on in the verse exactly who, who it is who will bow the knee. Those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth. Those in heaven, simply the redeemed Christian that, that have died and gone to glory. Yeah. And the angelic beings. They will all bow the knee. Those on earth, those are the Christians and the non-Christians that are still alive when this day comes. They will all bow the knee. Under the earth, that is the unredeemed people, that have, the non-believer, if you like, that has passed away, the fallen angels will all bow the knee. You know, dear friend, even Satan will bow the knee before Christ. If you are a Christian... You don't need to fear this day. You can look forward to this day. But if you're not a Christian, this day is a terrible day. No longer will you have an opportunity to get right with God. And then finally, uh, verse 11. A loud praise. The, the, re, the response here we see of Christ's exaltation carries on. Not only does every knee bow but every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord the use of the word tongue is just simply to refer to language that every language that has been and that will be and that is will all confess Jesus as Lord the redeemed and the unredeemed the redeemed by choice the unredeemed by force all those that have loved him and all those who have despised him will all confess that he is Lord. Every saint, every sinner, every Christian, every non-believer, every religious person from every other religion will all confess Jesus is Lord. There will not be one person silent on that day. There will be no hushed tones. There will be no sarcastic comments. There will be no 
saying Jesus is Lord under their breath to try and get away with it. But all shall confess Jesus is Lord. Uh, and what do we know about Jesus being Lord? Well, it's, it speaks of him being the absolute ruler, mm. that he is the sovereign one. It should warm our hearts to know that God is in control, that he is sovereign. He hasn't lost hold of the reins. We wonder where this world is going sometimes, but God knows. It hasn't taken him by surprise. He is in full control. It is a great comfort for the Christian that Christ is sovereign. Charles Spurgeon says the sovereignty is the pillar which the Christian lays his head. Mm. I don't know about you uh, or what you're going through, whether it's financial difficulties now or whether it's illness. We can take courage in knowing that Christ is sovereign. Mm. What the the sovereignty of, of Christ does and the lordship of Christ does it causes us to cast out all fear, to know that our days are in his hands, to know that he is the one that strengthens us and equips us. He is the one that has ordained all. On that day, that final day, uh, where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, we see the final step of Christ's exaltation, that he will be exalted, his exaltation will be complete on that day. As every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, uh, the the lordship of Christ will be clearly seen. The the sovereignty of Christ will be undeniable. It will be unescapable. Have you ever bowed the knee? Have you bowed and humbled yourself before him whilst there still is grace to be found in the eyes of God? And then finally, the end of verse 11, it says... To the glory of God the Father. Very simply, we won't spend much time. This is the purpose of the exaltation. To God's glory. Mm. Solely the glory. To God alone be the glory. Mm. What more needs to be said?